Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. There aren't a lot of people who have a life which resembles mine. As an actor from childhood who is still working on the cusp of 50, our guest, Will Wheaton, is one of the few. He joins us today to discuss his new book, Still Just a Geek, which is now available. Hello, Internet. You know what your day needs? Me reading you some spam comments that have been left on my blog. My name is Will Wheaton. I am an actor, writer, and producer. I have generalized anxiety disorder, and I have uh, some, I, I forget the exact medical term for it, but it's sort of like chronic depression. Will Wheaton may play Will Wheaton on Big Bang Theory, but his real-life personality is nothing like his character. I am on the set of Star Trek Picard to be Wesley Crusher, who is now a full-fledged traveler for the first time in three my name is Will Wheaton. I am an author, an entertainer, a mental health advocate, and a trauma survivor. Sorry, not sorry. Okay. I'm so excited that you're here. So thank you. And I want to dig right into your book, Still Just a Geek, because I'm fascinated. In a lot of ways, I think that this book is like opening a time capsule that you buried a couple of decades ago. In that it's a revision and an annotation of an earlier book of yours, which I think is so cool. So tell us about the book and how it's structured. John Ross Bowie described it as the Criterion edition of my 2004 memoir, which I love so much and is something that I'm trying very hard to earn. In 2000, I started a blog. And this was at a time when blogs were brand new. Social media didn't exist. Cell phones didn't have cameras on them. It was a very different time. And we joke about it, right? We call it like, remember when the internet was kind? It's like that era or a little over 20 years ago. And I had written a blog for a long time and gotten a bit of, it was just, it was easier to stand out then and be novel. And I did. And I took a lot of the things I had written in the blog and I turned it into a book. And the book was about this journey that I was on where I was starting out at the very beginning of being a blogger and trying to figure out like, who am I in my life? What do I want to do with myself? And I think that I really want to be a writer. I'm not quite sure that acting is the right thing for me. I'm not really sure how being part of Star Trek is going to relate to my life. And Just a Geek is kind of about working a lot of that stuff out. Still Just a Geek is what happens 20 years later when I look back on it after getting treatment and diagnosis for mental illness. 
after ending contact with my abusive and exploitive parents, after getting sober and seeing a very different person than I thought I was as I was turning 30. This book gave me this opportunity to look back on the person I was then with compassion and empathy and accountability and see that there was just so much pain and struggle in my life back then. And I was trying so hard to just figure out who I was and it all happened in public. And that process of figuring out who we are, I think is real important. That's like part of growing and, and, and finding your love in your life. I didn't really get to do that until I was in my 30s. I had no agency. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had been really, I, I had been made to believe that being an actor was the beginning and end of my life. It was all I could do. It was the only thing I was any good at. It was the only thing that I should do at all. And I didn't really like it. It was not, you know, I, I like being on set. You know, when you're in a cast and the cast comes together and there's just that magic, that sense of unconditional support, the shorthand, finishing each other's sentences, knowing who you can rely on. When that happens and you become a family and it's three decades later and you still love each other, that I love. And I'm so grateful for it. Everything else, I hated it. All that stuff that people are just like, yeah, let's do it. I'm going to go spend my entire afternoon on the freeway because I got to have an audition. I'm going to prepare the hell out of this self-tape audition because I really want to do it. I never really wanted to do it. And in between the writing of Just a Geek and Still Just a Geek, I kind of figured all that stuff out. And in Still Just a Geek, I'm looking back on it. And the annotations are what would happen if we were sitting together in a room and I was reading Just a Geek from 2004. And where there is an annotation in Still Just a Geek, it's as if I put the book down, looked at you and said, I just want to talk about this piece a little bit and go a little bit deeper into it. And then the back half of the book is, all right, now you know how I got here. And the back half of the book is notable speeches and essays about mental health and trauma recovery. And there's some funny, sweet stuff in there, too, about being a dad and how much I love being married and working on the Big Bang Theory and being part of Star Trek and those other pieces of me. But a big part of it for me personally is about this journey through trauma recovery to really finally become the me that I wanted to be instead of trying so hard to be the thing that my mom needed me to be. Yeah, and I think that's true for every actor that started at a young age. I think that there is a we're conditioned to not only feel like that this is what you should be doing, but also that we should be so grateful for this. Yeah, and don't have any opinions about it. Don't have any opinions about being here or being around here or anything at all, because if somebody thinks that you're not just delighted to be in your second hour of sitting in this waiting room to go in for your 30-second audition, they're not going to cast you and everyone's going to hate you because you're difficult. That was the kind of pressure that was put on me as a kid. Don't ever express an opinion. Don't ever you know, don't exist, <laughs> just show up and, and hit your mark. And that was hard. That was really, that was a really tough way to, to exist. I totally agree. And of course, one of the things about time capsules is that they reveal some of the ways, not only people, as you're talking about yourself changing, but also how cultures change over time. And you do start this book owning up to some of your old ways of thinking. 
I'm just wondering if there's something in particular that you discovered about yourself and who you were in the early 2000s as you were writing the blog posts in the book and what stands out as the thing that's changed the most about yourself. The really early writing, like the very earliest pieces that were just pulled off of Blogger when I had no idea what I was doing. I try to be patient and compassionate and empathetic toward it. But honestly, it's just embarrassing. It's not good writing. It's stuff that I just wish had not been public. I wouldn't mind it being in a journal so I could look back on it and learn from it and apply the lessons and and do all of that. Actor and blogger Will Wheaton has several cult classic roles under his belt, and now he can add best-selling author to the list of his accomplishments. Wheaton recently released an updated version of his memoir, and this week, Still Just a Geek hit number nine on New York Times' best-selling nonfiction list. But it's all in public, and it's real myopic, and it's super privileged, and it's a lot of what I guess we today we call main character syndrome, and I just was completely unaware of it. I really see that at that point in my life, I was in survival mode. Most of my life, I was in survival mode. I didn't actually start living and sort of thriving until like maybe in the last 10 years. And I wasn't aware of how deeply in survival mode I was. So when I see these things, I see using humor that is super hurtful, that's really punching down and not understanding that's what's happening. Just because I'm just trying to like, find a place to fit in. I mean, remember in the early 2000s, that whole thing about you got to be edgy, you got to just got to do this like edgelord humor and, and all of that. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll do that. And it wasn't ever really my style. But if this is what people want, a lot of that period of my life was trying to be who I thought other people wanted me to be. If I could be the best at being what someone else wanted me to be, maybe then I would be accepted. <laughs> and and I had to kind of figure out that I just need to be the best me and not be overly concerned with what other people think about my best self. It's really a, a, such an important lesson for everyone to understand, not just people in our industry that had the blessings that we had, but really, I think so much of our 20s is trying to fit into a mold of what we are supposed to play into. And I think for women, we deal a lot with using our sexuality to manipulate because it's what we've always had to do. And then your 30s, I think, for me at least, was about just ignoring that I didn't feel that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing or didn't feel like I was, that the outward facing me was very different than the inward facing me. And maybe that's just how it was supposed to be, I thought in my mind. Maybe like I'm keeping some of this from me. But really, I just didn't know what that was. And I think for me, it wasn't until after I had my son, where I had a mental health crisis in disguise as a as postpartum anxiety, but really I had anxiety my whole life, but it just hit an apex of being completely dysfunctional that made me start to really reflect on on all of that. It was very hard to go through, especially hard to confront publicly, as we so often do. So it must have been very hard for you to be so public and open about it. And I'm wondering if that process changed anything in how you think now, even after all of those revelations? I have found myself in the last like maybe month. I mean, I've been promoting this a lot and I'm talking about it a lot. And a big part of the story is the childhood trauma. And a big part of my story is my abuse and exploitation. And it's been challenging to kind of open the door to that room every day. 
and sit in that room. It's one of those rooms that like, I know it's there and it's part of me, but I prefer to keep the door closed and just walk past it if I can. I've spent much of the last month still in that room. And it is making me feel in the last week or so, I just want to pull the drapes on the world and stay inside for a while, get away from everything. And I've thought about all of this and specifically to your question, I was thinking very much about this last night. I was forced to live a public life against my will without my consultation or consent. When we were kids and, you know, we would see each other on auditions and at Debbie Gibson's parties and all the fun things that we did as kids, I wasn't ever existing in there as the person I am. I was always there as an asset to be photographed for Teen Magazine. That's how I felt all of the time. Because I was forced to participate in this massive big lie about my life, where when I was seven years old, mom made me go to the agent, made me go to the agency and tell her I want to do what mommy does. And then when I started almost immediately after a couple of auditions, I don't want to do this. I want to be a kid. Like, I clearly remember. Can you imagine your child telling you if Milo was, I'm just done with baseball, mom. I just want to be a kid. You'd probably have a conversation about, okay, well, this was your choice and this is what you wanted to do. And you've got a team that's real. Okay. That's one thing. But if he never wanted to do it, if it was never his thing and you were just like, nobody, you're going to do this because I got up this morning to take you. I can't imagine you doing that to him. I can't imagine you not hearing your child say, please let me be a kid. No matter what, especially as it relates to please stop making me go to work. So I was so gaslighted about that. And it all happened so publicly that I felt like to reclaim my voice and to take back myself, the counter to that lie had to be placed in the same level of visibility. The truth had to be put out in the same way. And I have since heard from literally uncountable people, hey, listen, I'm not an actor, but I had a similar experience. I was a scapegoat in my family and I can relate to that story. Was acting something that was a genuine interest for you? Was it something that was presented to you? How did you initially begin? Acting was actually something that was forced on me. I have these very clear memories of saying over and over, I don't want to do this. I just want to be a kid. Let me be a kid. And in that regard, I'm so grateful that I was supported by my wife and my editor and the people I work with to tell the story because it was hard to do. things come to mind, which is one, as I'm listening to you talk, and things that I often think about as far as the labor aspect of what child actors are expected to do. As a UNICEF ambassador, I travel the world to make sure that kids have every opportunity to be a normal child and who aren't forced into labor. And really, the entertainment industry, whether it be singing or dancing Maybe youth sports, although you're not getting paid for youth sports. So you're not like making more money than your mom in youth sports, right? So it's not as hardcore. But I literally, I'm like, 
I don't understand how it is so blatantly obvious that making a child work under really strenuous circumstances is not good. It's so important that this is a priority as a UNICEF ambassador that I have. And yet we don't look at entertainment like that at all. These kids work so hard. And I don't know that I necessarily would have had a normal childhood regardless of acting because I came from a super creative household. When it got really hard for me was like high school because I had already been on Who's the Boss for, I don't know, eight years at that point. And everybody thinks they know you. Not only that, but it was like, what was I missing? I didn't even know because I'd been working since I was seven. So I was like, I don't even. And how are you supposed to go relate to teenagers because you've been practicing relating to adults? I still feel that way about like huge actors that isolate themselves, that can't be seen in public, the George Clooney's and the Tom Cruise's and all of that, because I'm like, how are you supposed to play a normal person? If you're literally never treated like a normal person or you're never around normal people. And the other thing I thought of as you're speaking is I remember for me, the point that I'm at now, right? So the 30s, I was spent like just, okay, this is it. And then I had my baby and then I had to do some deep trauma healing and that's never ending. I'm still in that process. And acting has become so hard for me. And I'll tell you why. I think because so much of my trauma, I fought really hard to be who I am today. And a lot of that was overcoming trauma. So to go to work and have to cry for 12 hours straight and pick at the scabs of the wounds that I am trying to heal It becomes harder and harder. And people used to say to me, like, why are you hosting Project Runway All-Stars? And I'd be like, because I could actually be myself. I'm not having to go in and think about tragic things to get myself emotionally to a place where the script calls for me to be in. So it's been a process, but I think that I'm just now trying to figure out what I want to do because we're not given the freedom to do that. We talk a lot about the hardships of the pandemic, but one of the blessings for me was that I was able to go back to school and take classes and have that time to sit and reflect and do my therapy and taught myself how to paint and all of that. I want to tell you that one of my favorite scenes in the book, it comes early on when an earlier book of yours was released and you're at a signing in Portland, Oregon at Powell's and Tim O'Reilly, who was a computing publisher and pioneer in open source computing buys a copy of your book, and you are very much like fanboying on the inside. And it was like you flipped the tables on the life as a celebrity on the convention circuit. And I wonder if that gave you sort of an insight into fandom and that world that lives around Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. I was a Star Trek fan before I was before Star Wars existed. I loved Star Trek when I was a little boy. Some of my earliest memories are sitting in the backyard with a little Fisher-Price record player listening to power records, the little Star Trek Peter Pan story records. Um, I had a really vibrant imagination and I and I really loved genre fiction. So when I was in like probably fourth grade, I went to my very first convention down at the Ambassador Hotel that was still open. And like, how Gen X is this? My parents drove me and my other, like, what, fourth grade, fifth grade friend down there. 
dropped us off a load and said, we'll be back at five o'clock. The only thing more Gen X would have been if they'd left us with a casserole. And we spent the whole day there, my friend and I, and I loved it. I found like, oh my gosh, there are people who love this stuff the way I love it. One can do a Star Trek convention every weekend throughout the year now. There is a convention going on someplace on this planet Earth. It is an, another unique phenomenon, a spinoff of Star Trek. I never realized when uh, I signed on uh, the, uh, Starship Enterprise that we literally would be trekking over this planet. It's cool to like this weird stuff. And here are people who are fans who have made things of their own. That was my introduction to it. So just move forward a few years and I'm in my teens and it's right before I get cast on Star Trek. I'm a gamer. I'm going to gaming conventions and playing games at shows here in LA. And I'm going to Star Trek conventions before I'm on Star Trek. And I'm experiencing those things. And I can remember what it is like to be a person who's so excited to go to a con to meet somebody they think is cool. And then that person's a dick. And it is heartbreaking. It is soul crushing. It's deeply personal, even though it never is. And it hurts. I will never make another person feel that way. I will always do everything I can to give as much to that moment as I possibly can. Because for me, that's the 700th person I've met today. For them, it's the time they met me. And I absolutely have a huge responsibility and a huge opportunity. They're going to remember it, right? I'm going to do my best to give them some time that's going to inspire them, validate them, make them feel seen, and send them on their way with energy in themselves that's loving and kind so that they can't help but pass that on to the next person they encounter. And when I talk about being the person I need in the world, when I talk about being the change we want to see in the world, that's what I'm talking about. I need a person to be kind and gentle and welcoming. So I work very hard to be that person in the world. Well, and it's, you're right. It's, there's nothing that hurts more than someone that you admire, you know, meeting them in person and having it not be the experience you were hoping for. I always think about, I don't know what this person's going home to. So the fact that Charmed was such an escape for so many people, to me, probably meant that they escaped from something. I imagine that people escaped into Charmed in a similar way to the way people escape into Star Trek. That's exactly right. I often say that Charmed fans are like Star Trek fans. They are the most diehard, and it's because it touches them in a time in their life when they needed it. But beyond that, you don't know what people go home to. I just did my first con, which was really awesome. But I think the thing that struck me about those, about the cons, is like people are paying a lot of money. I don't think I realized that people have to pay for autographs and pictures. And that part made me feel a little uncomfortable. I was like, wait, I would do this for free. So I don't know if they're necessarily something that I would seek out again. It would just have to be, I think, the right time and place. Plus, I just don't like to be away from my kids. I want to shift gears and I want to talk about the Entertainment Weekly review of the first edition of this book and what that did to you. It was really hurtful. It was really hurtful and I took it really personally. Uh, I talk about this in the introduction to Still Just a Geek. When Just a Geek was published, it didn't get a lot of mainstream attention at all. And when Entertainment Weekly called my manager and said, we're going to do a feature review, can you get us a copy of the book? And we were thrilled. That would be amazing exposure. We were so excited. I grabbed one of my personal copies off of my personal bookshelf. I drove it to the building and like did it myself and got it to them. 
And next week, the big feature review they were going to do was about 200 words. It was a sidebar on the bottom of a, of a page. And they called me the whiner of the week. They drew this really hurtful caricature of me being like all sad and, and crying, which is terrific, a terrific way to represent somebody who has clinical depression. And they said that I endlessly lamented that I used to be an actor when I was a kid. And it was real cruel. And the thing about it is that it was inaccurate. If that were a fair, honest, accurate assessment, okay, but it wasn't. I opened up my manuscript in a word processor and I searched for used to be and things like that. And it shows up like twice, maybe three times. It's real clear that somebody, somebody just did a hit on me. What's interesting is on that same page are all the fawning mentions of people who are hot at the moment. And I remember feeling like I'm a person it's safe to take a shot at because I don't have any, there's no consequence for that. So for years, I was just like, I will never talk to Entertainment Weekly ever again. And they would always come and ask me to do things with them. And I would tell them no, and we would tell them why. And more than once, whoever it is that came to ask us would come back to my team after finding that in the archives and say, I just want to tell you, I don't know who did this, but on behalf of the paper, on behalf of the magazine I work for now, this really isn't who we are. And I'm really sorry and absolutely understand why you will not talk to us. It was just a really crappy, shitty thing to do. And the thing is, at that time in my life, I hadn't gotten diagnosed with depression and anxiety. I didn't know that I had PTSD. I didn't yet fully understand how incredibly abused I had been by my father because my mom made me believe that emotional abuse wasn't a thing. And my dad was one of the most emotionally abusive people I have ever been around in my entire life. Just endlessly cruel. And he delighted in his cruelty to me. And I know that it was a choice because I watched him fawn over and absolutely unconditionally love my brother and my sister. And he was just terrible to me. I didn't know any of that stuff was going on. So whenever something came up in press about a thing I had done that was like dismissive to me or was cruel to me, I interpreted it through the lens of mental illness as ah confirmation that my dad is right about me, that I really am as worthless and awful and useless as he makes me believe I am. And when that would come up in press and things like that, and when it would come up in toxic fandom, it was incredibly hurtful. Every fandom and every section of any fandom is capable of exist of exhibiting toxic behaviors. It is not restricted to any one specific line of thinking. It's not specific to holding a certain opinion because that is not what is toxic. Ultimately what is toxic, it's not what you think. It's not the opinion that you hold. It's the way you behave based on that opinion or to paraphrase a, a term that I've heard in relation to, say, movies and things of that nature, it's not what you are about, it's how you are about it. It was really hurtful, and I'm just really grateful that Anne was there for me through all of that, too, and that my kids were there through all of that to provide this contrast and this reminder of what's important and what, what's enduring and what matters and what is just cruel words. Yeah. And I think any sort of running the parallel between what, how your dad emotionally abused you and then reading a review that seemed to be maliciously cruel, I'm sure triggered shit about your dad, which I don't think that when people are publicly cruel, they realize that 
it's not about just this, right? Sometimes our trauma gets tapped into in a way that was unexpected. And that is sometimes more hurtful. And there's not a lot of people in the world who had the childhoods we did. Like, we were a very small group. And we're a very small group that didn't end up in rehab or a grave, thankfully. And now you and I both live with generalized anxiety disorder and other mental health challenges. And I'm wondering, do you think that you would have had those issues if you weren't a child actor? How much do you think your early success contributes to that? It is my understanding from discussions with my doctor that I'm just biologically predisposed to mental illness. It runs in the family. Neurological chemical imbalances are common in in my genetics. So that's a risk factor, right? It is also my understanding that as a consequence of having emotionally immature parents, having self-centered parents, and having emotionally unavailable parents, which forced me into a parenting role, particularly my mother putting into my hands and onto my shoulders responsibility for her happiness and her sense of achievement. I was supporting our family when I was 10. And she made sure I knew that it was really important for the family that I do this stuff. It was always for the family, for the family, and like put all this responsibility on me. It is my understanding that as I tried desperately to cope with all of that and tried to cope with, it's traumatizing when you're a kid and you don't want to be going to work and your parents are making you go to work. It's traumatizing when you're a kid and your dad makes you feel like any display of emotion is weakness worthy of mocking and humiliation. And you're being forced by your mom to go to the set where you have to be emotionally vulnerable and cry for a role. Like it's really hard. And that, as I understand it, just affected the chemistry of my brain. And I write about it in Still Just a Geek. It's the singular, the single most catastrophic event in my life of abuse and abandonment and neglect. When my parents forced me to go do a movie in, uh, do a horror movie in Italy where my sister and I were physically abused and my parents did nothing to stop it, participated in it. And when all of that was over, it was like this thing in me just snapped. And all I could do was survive. To just survive, my brain did what it had to do. And as I understand it, it did all this chemical stuff that I am now thankfully treating with medication and therapy and lots of work. I'm not an expert in mental health. I'm certainly an expert in living with it, but I don't, I'm not a doctor at all. So I can't say for sure. Yeah, being an actor was a big part of it. I don't necessarily believe that capital H Hollywood messes people up. I do believe that parents who do not support their children and allow their children to be exploited by an industry that will take everything it can from adults who know how to stand up for themselves are making a big mistake. I think parents that really let that happen are making a gigantic mistake. And they probably shoulder a lot of responsibility that the entertainment industry absolutely exploits and exacerbates. But it starts and ends with parents. You're your kid's parent. Your number one job in the world is to protect them and to prepare them to be adults. Hopefully you raise a confident, empathetic, compassionate child who knows how to establish and protect boundaries. That's what I wanted to do for my boys. And it's what my sister's doing for my nephew. My parents didn't do it for me. I had to learn it myself. 
And that was really tough. I eventually got there and I'm really glad that I did. Absolutely broke a cycle of generational trauma. I'm extremely happy about that. I feel really good about it. But look, mixed in with all of that and the joy and the sense of I have really made something out of a lot of pain and broken pieces. There's still a lot of pain and broken pieces, you know? Not to belittle any of the work you've put in personally, but you did marry one of the best people on the planet. I absolutely did. And I would love for you to just tell my listeners about you and Anne and your relationship and what a special person she is, because I think it really is a great explanation of how love can fill your life in a way that it doesn't distract from being a complete person, but it's additive to finding who that complete person is. Hello, friends. My name is Anne Wheaton. Last year, I created a rescue pet calendar featuring some well-known people with their rescue pets. And I had so much fun doing it that I wanted to create a new one. So it features all new people, except these people. They were in it last year, but the cats weren't in it. So they're new. And then everyone else inside is new too. Anne is the other half of my heartbeat. And if someone listening to this is lucky enough to have a person who's the other half of their heartbeat, they immediately know what I mean when I say that. We met when I was 23 and I fell for her almost immediately. I knew that she was divorced. I knew that she had two kids and I didn't care. I thought she was incredible. I thought her kids were incredible. And for the first time in my like romantic life, which was stunted just because I was in the industry. I met a person who saw me, who didn't care about what I did for a job, who didn't care about what I had done for a job. She didn't even know that I had been an actor. She knew that I was friends with our mutual friend, Stephanie. And we started dating at a time where neither one of us wanted to date. It's such a when Harry met Sally end of the movie sitting on the couch story (laughs) of how like we went on double dates with our friends so we could pretend that we weren't actually dating. But eventually we fell in love with each other and we moved in together and then we raised kids together. We've been married for this year is going to be 23 years. And she's been with me at every step of my journey. When I started my blog, it's because I was just struggling like crazy as an actor and didn't know what to do. And I couldn't get cast and I couldn't get callbacks. And just, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know how I was going to support the family I was hoping to build. And I had always wanted to write and I had always liked telling stories, but I never had the opportunity for like formal education And she really supported me just learning in real time in public how to do all of that stuff. She supported me when I was like, I would get an audition and I would look at it and say, I'm 100% wrong for this. I'm not driving to Santa Monica at four o'clock on a Friday. I'm just not going to do it. And she was really supportive of all of that at a time when I still had contact with my mother and she was losing her mind at me. Like, why are you passing on auditions? Because I'm not right for it. I don't want to go put myself through that. I would rather stay home and like work on the story that I'm doing. Probably the biggest, most important thing and contributed to my life was helping me make the choice to quit drinking. I spent about 10 years just being a drunk because I was in so much pain. And I spent 10 years being really aware of how much enmity my father had for me and just struggling to not accept it and holding out hope that if I just touched the buttons in exactly the right configuration, somehow it was going to change everything. And I was going to have supportive parents who loved me unconditionally. 
that wasn't happening. And I became a drunk to deal with that. And there was a point where she was like, I am concerned about you. I think you're killing yourself. And I was like, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I need help. And the next day, and that was the last time I ever drank. And the next day I started getting help for that. And she stood with me and supported me through all of it, has accepted me for who I am and has always seen the parts of me that I just always wished people would see. And we're partners during the pandemic, during the worst of the pandemic, we had black mold because things aren't bad enough. We had black mold in the kitchen. We had to have everything torn out and everything all put back in. And it was really rough. And it was just every day was another fucking thing. And this went on for months. And every day, one of us would say, just want to take a moment to acknowledge that we married the right person. We know that we married the right person because we're getting through all of this and all of these things together. And also in a practical way, I'm a barely competent adult. I'm an artist. I'm, I'm always deep in my head. I'm always working on something creative. If it were left to me, no bills would ever be paid because I just wouldn't do it. I'd forget when I try to sit down and do those things. I get overwhelmed and I freeze up and panic. Anne is the adult in our marriage and handles all of those things. David is that for me, too, for all the same reasons. Like, I'm just I would rather dream a dream than to sit down and actually have to deal with just logistics or scheduling or bills or anything like that. There's a chapter in your book where you and Anne and your kids are about to go on a family vacation and you get this call from your agent about some potential auditions at a time when the phone hadn't been ringing too much and you were put in this position of choosing family or acting. It's really a powerful chapter. And I wonder if you would just talk about it a little bit. It was a really difficult moment. We So we were super broke and we were like, our life was balancing the checkbook account to a penny so that we're not overdrawn. And I know that doesn't make us special. I know a lot of people deal with that, but it was also really new for me and I didn't know what to do about it. And one of the things that we would do so that we could have good, joyful, away memories with the kids, we had friends who lived in Lake Tahoe who owned a cabin. They would let us go stay there without charging us rent or anything. So we'd drive up there and spend the time with the kids and we'd take our dog and it was great. And as you said, we were getting ready to go on a trip. Like the car was packed. And my manager called me and was like, you have auditions Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, or like, it was like just all of this stuff all coming up all at one time. And I didn't want to go do any of them because we had a family vacation planned. Like we were literally about to leave. And I felt like at this real crossroads, there were all of these competing things happening in me and there were two like forces really fighting with each other. One was the me that just wanted to be a husband and a dad and spend time with my kids. And then there was this other part of me that felt like here's an opportunity to support the family, to earn money that we desperately need, but also to have this, like maybe one of these projects is like the one. That's how they keep you coming back. That's exactly how they keep you coming back. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So I stayed home. My stuff comes out of the car. The kids are upset. Anne's upset. I'm upset. And the auditions are awful. They're a disaster. I go into the first audition on that Monday morning, and they're terrible to me. They had th that thing where they had me prepare like a number of scenes, and halfway through the first scene, they're like, okay, thanks. 
why did you have me prepare five scenes if you're having me do half a scene? Because you made the decision when I walked into the room that I was wrong for the part. That's fine. I wish they would just say, oh, no, thank you. Or, hey, listen, you're not right for this, but maybe this other piece, whatever. Anyway, I leave. And they treated me terribly, too. It's a thing casting does. Casting treats some people better than other people. And I think that it is a consequence of them being overworked and just choosing where they're going to put that focus and time and all that stuff. Casting was terrible to me. Went to the audition the next day, same thing. Awful. Just catastrophic, disaster, terrible. And I was pissed. I was like, I, this is exactly what I knew was going to happen. I knew that I wasn't going to book the jobs. I knew that I was going back to like an abusive relationship. It's the cycle of abuse. And I, when I went into the last time and I was just, and I just thought, and listen, honestly, a big part of me was also like, oh my God, the shit I'm going to have to deal with from my mom, even though I'm like almost 30, the shit I'm going to have to deal with from my mom when I tell her, yeah, I passed on auditions to take a trip with my family. Rather than being supportive and telling me, man, you got to do what's best for your family and do what's best for you. I never got that kind of support from either of my parents. It would have been, what are you doing? What about your career? Translated to what are you doing? What about the access I used to have that I don't have anymore because you're not famous? I want that access. And when the kids and the end came home, I was like, I'm never doing this again. This is the end. I'm done. I'm, I am never putting the question mark of the what if career thing in front of the absolute, I know what I want to do for myself and my family. And that was a really significant moment for me of really making a choice to just, it still took 15 years, but that was the moment when I decided this isn't what I want to do. I'm finding something else for myself. And I think when you make those decisions, the universe rewards those decisions. I want to just talk about that moment many years later when you met Bill Prady and he asked you to join Big Bang Theory. That must have felt like you had to pinch yourself because I couldn't think of a better place for you. Honestly, it was that show was made for you. Yeah. In retrospect, it all makes all kinds of sense. It's so obvious. But at the time, I almost blew it. At the time, I was like, I don't want to play me. That's a cheat. I want to play a character. Uh, hey, Will, what you doing? I was on Star Trek, just rooting for the home team. Star Trek stinks. Yeah, live long and suck it. And what I'm thinking is, my parents aren't going to be impressed if I'm playing myself. My dad's going to blow it off as, oh, they just cast you because you're you, not because of anything you did. That thinking infected so much of my decision making. And it was my friend, John Rogers, who, who said, I called him after Bill offered me the role. And I called John and I was like, I don't know what to do. I really want to work on this show, but I don't necessarily want to play myself. And he was like, what is wrong with you? A rerun of the Big Bang Theory just beat, like won the night. What are you talking about? And I was like, okay, well, I just wanted to run it by you. I, I was leaning that way, but you can stop yelling at me. And he was like, I can't believe we're even having this conversation. So I called Bill back and Bill says, Great. I'm thrilled that you're going to do this, but I want, and I'm going to, I don't know how you're going to feel about this. I'm going to have you play a delightfully evil version of yourself. And I was like, dude, you should have led with that. I would have been on board hundred percent from the beginning because that's a character. So it was great. They were like, I talked earlier about when you just fit into a cast and when everybody just, everybody takes care of each other and just everybody's happy to be there and nobody, there's no drama, no divas, no bullshit. Just, Hey, we're having a really good time. And I cannot believe we're getting paid to do this. That's what my experience on big bang theory was every day on, on stage 25 was the best day of my life. 
Kaylee Cuoco is literally one of my favorite people on the planet. She did Charmed for a couple of years, and I adore her. And she has not changed at all. She went out of her way from day one to welcome me into that cast. She and Galecki were just like, we are so happy you are here. You are going to have the best time here. And they, all of them, the biggest TV stars in the world, man. And none of them are any different toward me than they were 10 years ago when we started. They're just harder to hang out with because we can't go anywhere because they're so famous. But it was an amazing experience. As the show went on and as I, as the character changed and stopped being a stylized evil version of me and became actually an interesting in-universe alternate version of me, the character I played on Big Bang Theory had more in common with Will Wheaton from the Prime Universe, you know, than the, the original <laughs> evil Will Wheaton did. I got to start consulting with the writers and sharing stories about my real life and my experience as an actor and my experience as part of Star Trek. And they incorporated it into the show and into the character. And it was really beautiful and wonderful and super validating to have that part of my story incorporated into what's such an enormous part of pop culture in, in such a beautiful, positive, celebratory way. I really love it. I'm just really grateful for it. And you've always been very honest about doing Star Trek and, you know, that franchise is so huge, particularly about the next generation's first season being problematic. You've always been an honest and honest person. Trek is now seeing this revival, if you can call it that, because I feel like it's never gone away. And it's I wouldn't call it a revival. I would say that it's been surging for years. And it's just now that kind of like people outside of fandom are noticing. But I think when you look at it now, it's full of non-binary and queer characters with meaningful storylines and thoughtful introspection on social issues. And that evolution must be pretty incredible for you to see. Star Trek's always been so incredibly progressive. That's like the central message of it. A thing I loved about it when I was a little boy that I love about it now is that Star Trek looks at you specifically, Alyssa, and says, there's a place for you specifically in the future. There's a place where you are special in the future. And then Star Trek turns to the person who's sitting next to you and says, you specifically, there is a place for you in the future. I love that about Star Trek. And it says, we're going to get through this. We're going to do it. And we're all, all going to get there. And it's going to be incredible. And I have always loved that. And it was weird to me. In the first season of Next Generation, we had some appallingly bad episodes. Code of Honor is just racist as fuck. Like, I mean, it's, it's one of those things like the day the clown cried, it should just be like put away and never aired again. And so much of that first season is. It's almost like a shakedown crew, like we're just trying things out and seeing what breaks and things break all the time. And thank God for Whoopi Goldberg, because without Whoopi Goldberg wanting to be on Star Trek, it's unlikely we would have been renewed for a second season. It is unlikely that next generation would have had the opportunity to, as they say, grow the beard and become the show that it became. And when I watch the current Star Treks, I'm just overwhelmed with how much joy I have 
knowing that I'm a tiny little part of the DNA of these shows that I'm crazy about, that there's a little bit of me and my work in there, that they're standing on kind of the same way we stood on the shoulders of the original series. And when I interview people as the host of The Ready Room who are on the new Star Trek series, people who I think are just phenomenal, like I cannot get enough of them. I love Wesley Crusher. I cherish Wesley Crusher. I am fiercely proud of Wesley Crusher. It is an honor and a privilege to be the actor who played him. My sad truth is that I couldn't fully feel any of those things for a lot of reasons when he and I lived and worked on the Enterprise. And when I was finally able to, I thought it was too late. I didn't think I would ever have a chance to fully embrace and appreciate playing him again. I didn't think I'd get to love being Wesley in the moment the way I love being Wesley in my memory. They tell me how much they loved Next Generation or that they grew up watching Wesley or Wilson Cruz, who I adore, telling me that Wesley Crusher was a, a character that he had a little bit of a crush on. And I just feel like it's just amazing. I guess it was like last week, some dickhead at Fox was like, Star Trek's too woke, which is water's too wet. No, I'm sorry. You've confused Star Trek with, I don't know, everything else. It's always been really progressive, and I really love that. And to all the sad little man-children who were pissed off that there's progressiveness in their laser guns, like, there's plenty of regressive science fiction from the 50s for you to go enjoy where women know their place, okay? So, like, the rest of us who live in 2022 are going to be here in Star Trek. You can continue to exist in the 1950s. Have Brett Kavanaugh come over and watch the show with me. So I want to bring it back to your book to finish this out because I think— Something really special. Talk about everything coming full circle and when you make the right choices in life. The universe giving you the gifts. Still Just a Geek is a New York Times bestseller. I know. I can't believe that. How does that make you feel? I mean, do you feel vindicated? I feel seen. I don't want to allow myself to feel vindicated because that feels like there's a sense of, ah, fuck you. And I don't want that energy to come into what really is overwhelming gratitude. I am so grateful to be seen. I am so grateful that all the work that I did, all the people who helped me do this work, that we all worked together to make something that, as it turns out, matters to a lot more people than I ever expected. My agent called me the day that this happened and she said, listen, I've got, uh, do you have time to get on a conference call? And I was like, yes. She said, all right. So I've got your manager, everybody at the publisher and all that. And I was like, oh no, I'm in trouble. Like I'm around, I'm telling fascists to go fuck themselves all the time. And I was like, no, someone has gotten mad somewhere and, and I'm in trouble. And I was just prepared for that. And my editor says, I wanted you to know that Still Just a Geek is on the indie bookshop bestseller list. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. I'm so excited. Wow, go us. And he's like, and you should also know that it's number nine on the New York Times list. And I didn't, I was like, that doesn't make sense. And I didn't know what to do. I felt like everybody else was more excited about it than I was because I had made this deliberate choice to be stoic about it. Deliberate choice to choose a middle way and to not let someone else's definition of success define my sense of success and my personal sense of accomplishment. And that 
that's a really great value to have. And it's a really good life skill to have that I think the more we can learn as people to find satisfaction and, and validation and joy and accomplishment in just doing the thing, doesn't matter what it is, doing the thing that's important to us, when we can find validation in that, if someone else happens to like it, that's really cool. And I'm so glad that you came to be part of this party, but it's not like I'm just waiting for someone else to tell me how to feel. Like I spent my whole life feeling that way and I don't need to put that into some, somebody else's hands. How freeing is it to feel that, to get to that place? I'm there right there with you. And I think it's the most free I've ever felt to create because it's more about the process and not the result. It's the planter and not the harvester. Yeah, absolutely. And it just feels like doing it is the thing. Getting it done is the thing. I have heard from uncountable people now that what I want, they tell me what they got out of the book and it's what I put into the book, which is that's validating. And that makes me feel seen. And that's really great. There's a little part of this where I have made a choice with my friends and my family to be insufferable about being a New York Times bestselling author. So I'm signing birthday cards. Your New York Times bestselling author friend will. My nephew just graduated and I signed his graduation card. Congratulations, your New York Times bestselling uncle. I am really, really pleased and grateful and happy to be able to very honestly say that had that not happened, I would still feel really good about this. And I'd still be really grateful for the process that it has happened. I called John Scalzi and I was like, I trust you. You're a New York Times bestselling author and have been multiple times. What is this? What does it mean practically? And what did he say? He said, it makes it a lot easier for you to sell the next one. Yeah. He says, he said, so I'm going to tell you the same thing. My editor told me your first name is now a New York Times bestselling author. Your second name is Will and your last name is Wheaton. <laughs> Which I thought was really funny. But he said, yeah, it means that you have just a lot of opportunities open up. It is a thing I get to have for the rest of my life. It's amazing. I hit the New York Times bestseller list with my children's books. And it was, it's just, it feels good. And it's so like surprising. It, I just didn't expect it. Finally, my final question for you is what gives you hope? The commitment that Zoomers have to inclusion and diversity, the celebration and acceptance of everyone as they are without judgment by young people is a fundamental paradigm shift in the way society treats marginalized people. I just see so many young people who are, they're not revanchist the way so many people in our generation and so many like conservative boomers are. That gives me a ton of hope. I don't have a lot of hope right now. I'll be honest with you. I'm spending a lot of time in despair. I'm terrified that fascism is going to overtake America. But when I see people like Fetterman winning Pennsylvania, because Fetterman was like, yeah, fuck you. I'm progressive. And you know what? A lot of people are. And I'm done fucking apologizing for it. I'm so glad to see that. And I'm really happy to see people that I align with ideologically punching back and just refusing to be defined by our opponents. And that gives me hope. I have to keep reminding myself, the bad guys didn't do this in four years. The bad guys have been doing this our entire lives. That's right. It's been generations. They've been setting this table for a really long time. And it's probably going to take us just as long to successfully clear it all off. At least we've started. And I do have an incredible amount of faith in younger people. Just I feel like 
the generations behind us, I mean, it's an unscientific experience for me because it's just people who like choose to come to me at cons. And I sometimes go to high schools and colleges and talk to kids and stuff. But I just see kids that like care about climate change and they care about economic inequality and they care about social justice. And that is how we get closer to the Star Trek future and farther away from the Mad Max future. And I would be really happy about that. What gives you hope? You give me hope, Will Wheaton. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you. When you were a kid, were you, um, were you called a nerd? And if so, how did you deal with it? When I was a little boy, I was called a nerd all the time because I didn't like sports. Uh, I loved to read. I liked math and science. I thought school was really cool. And um, it hurt a lot because it's... It's never okay when a person makes fun of you for something like you didn't choose. You know, we don't choose to be nerds. We can't help it that we like these things. And we shouldn't apologize for liking these things. I wish that I could tell you that there is a really easy way to just not care. But the truth is it hurts. But here's the thing that you might be able to understand, as a matter of fact, I'm confident you'll be able to understand this because you asked this question. When a person makes fun of you, when a person is cruel to you, it has nothing to do with you. It's not about what you said, it's not about what you did, it's not about what you love. It's about them feeling bad about themselves. They feel sad. They don't get positive attention from their parents. They don't feel smart. They don't understand the things that you understand. Maybe one of their parents really pushing them to be a cheerleader or a baseball player or an engineer or something that they just don't want to do. Each of us has a past. Each of us has elements of our past which embarrass, shame, or anger us. Each of us can look back at things we said or did or attitudes we had and wish we never had them. What's important, what's critical in growth, is the ability to confront those past versions of ourselves and interrogate not the things we did or the beliefs we had, but the origins of those thoughts or actions. That's where the growth lies. That's where the trauma chain breaks. That's where we can move forward and become the best versions of ourselves. Each of us needs to be in constant process of this interrogation. Growth and activism mean getting really comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's not a bad thing. Too much comfort makes it easy to overlook the things we do that hurt other people or that hurt ourselves. I challenge each of us to be more like Will, to dig deep into who we used to be and use it as a roadmap for who we will become. The world will be such a better place once we do. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. 
Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.